1: So hi, everyone. Welcome back to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're really excited to have a guest who knows a ton about Middle Eastern geopolitics, which, if you've been following the news, might be something sort of relevant right now. So joining us today is Iftah Berman, who's the founder of the Middle East Learning Academy. He's a Middle Eastern scholar that regularly briefs diplomats, foreign officials, academics, uh, as well as different levels of young professionals, he's very actively engaged with education. He also acts as the director of foreign senior level missions to Israel of U.S. government officials, U.S. military officials, and all different sorts of think tank researchers. So because he's deeply involved with education, he regularly gives lectures to students as well as different tour groups that are seeking a broader context of what's going on in the Middle East who and really want to understand the complexities of the region as opposed to just one narrative or another. Iftah is currently working on his PhD, and his dissertation focuses on Hezbollah in Syria, both the formation as well as their modern political economy. But he also studies and briefs experts on topics ranging from the Arab-Israeli conflict to Iranian-Western relations. So all relevant. Iftah, thanks so much for joining us on Reconsider.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
3: Yeah. So I think we... As, as much as we already covered Iran in the last topic, we only kind of covered Iran. And we actually really, we covered Iran from the U.S. perspective, right? And, and in particular, the Soleimani strike. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? How was Iran likely to react? What were their options? How does the strike play into the laws of war? And if we're breaking them, what does that mean? And so maybe we want to get a little bit more of an understanding of where Iran sits in, in all of this, right, in, in its relationship with the United States, in its relationship with the Middle East. So we've got some, you know, I, I think we want to start broad. And so maybe the, the thing to ask you is, what, what is Iran's broader position generally in the Middle East? And obviously, it's been very involved in many other nations, in particular, through its militias. And so has it achieved any meaningful objectives in its participation in these regional wars? in particular its presence in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, have they made progress in their broader regional objectives and what's been the impact on their domestic politics?
2: Well, that's, <laughs> that's one of those questions that you can start and you, know, you can end in three hours and still not answer it completely. But let me start from the, the basics here to understand that when we're talking about Iran's uh, current, current efforts, starting from 1979, we're actually uh, talking about the most recent manifestation of a 1300 year old uh, strife uh, conflict that is the Sunni-Shia conflict, well versed in that but this is an expression of two elements combined. So, on the one hand, yes, it's the religious ideology of Shiites to assert domination over Islam, but there's also the historical aspirations of Iran to return to the days of the empire. Iran, of course, is a, uh, has a history of 2,500 years that it uh, reigned as an empire in this region. So the Iranian people, as such, bring that into the, uh, into the conversation. So you combine both things uh, in 1979, and you get most of the motivation that is standing behind what Iran is doing in this region in the last few years. But that really is the bigger picture. But when we're zooming in, first we can see that Iran is, uh, after the uh, 79 revolution, is off to a brand new start. It's already made its new enemy, uh, uh, the United States, after the whole embassy, American embassy in uh, Tehran uh, issue, uh, an affair, and immediately steps into the Iran-Iraq war. Coming out of it quite feeble, quite crippled, and quite weak. Uh, in fact, it was said that uh, the Supreme Leader, would, when he uh, surrendered, he compared it to drinking a, a cup of poison. So understanding that in the end of the 1980s, Iran comes out of those, uh, as a state, quite uh, fragile, that's one, with one, one very important current that we have to consider. In the 1990s, Iran gathers more strength. And then identifies an opportunity as in the 2003 George uh, Bush is, is waging the uh, war on terror and forces are going into Iraq and bringing down Saddam Hussein, which for intents and purposes was the, maybe w- without making him a hero or anything, was the, the boy with his finger in the dam, stopping the Iranians from their uh, regional aspirations. But uh, once he's down, once he's gone, it allows a very small creep, a very slow creep of Iran into Iraq. And, of course, the uh, Arab revolutions of 2010 expedite the situation. And much more than that, in 2014, ISIS is coming into Iraq and basically showing the bankruptcy that the, uh, Iran- the Iraqi um, military forces are in not being really capable of stopping ISIS in, uh, in Mosul, in other Iraqi cities, eventually allowing the Iranians even uh, the motivation and the in to uh, Iraq at that point. The Iranians uh, continue their entry, not just to Iraq, not just establishing their proxies uh, there, but also entering uh, Syria and taking over, of course, as we know. and. All the time, the Iranians are conducting uh, something that uh, we know Iran is very good at, which is a proxy war. Iran doesn't really fight the wars overseas through the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards. You don't have Iranian troops that are dying on the battlefields. but you rather have, uh, in Syria, in 2015, somewhere around 70,000 Ira- uh, Iraqi, Afghani, Pakistani, And other Shiite combatants working all as proxy uh, militias for Iran. Now, Iran's interest is already applied uh, to Lebanon through Hezbollah. Iran's interest, starting from 1979, is already to destabilize Saudi Arabia through the Shiite community in eastern Saudi, uh, sitting on the oil fields. Iran's interest is to destabilize Bahrain through the uh, Shiite community there and other countries. But in, in the Arab Revolution era, This chaos that is created enables Iran to really come into these uh, countries uh, with full force through their proxies. So we're seeing it in Syria, we're seeing it in Yemen, of course, and we're seeing Iran establishing uh, a foot in the door in that way. Now, more than any place, any other place, Iran uh, is present in Syria and in Iraq, Uh, Iraq uh, fully, and in Syria – Establishing itself with two to three thousand Iranian Revolutionary Guards in 2015, and to an extent also today, at least several hundred uh, IRGC uh, are still there. So, when we're asking uh, prior to Soleimani's killing, where is Iran? Iran is creeping its way throughout various states through its proxies across the Middle East to establish its essence, its its presence there. But also to establish itself in uh, the local community. So, for instance, in in Syria, we're seeing Iran not just having proxy uh, militias, but also establishing universities and trying to take over contracts uh, for building up infrastructure in 2019. We're seeing Iran trying to get involved in cementing itself into Syria. We're seeing in the same time, uh, Iranian civilians or Uh, Veterans that are accepting or receiving through the Iranian influence, Syrian citizenship. Some numbers talk all the way up to two million uh, Iranian nationals that were embedded as Syrian uh, uh, people, Syrian civilians into Syria today. And they can recruit to the Syrian military. They can become a part of the different militias that are operating within Syria today. And that's a way to overcome uh, certain restrictions that the Russians and the Americans and also the Israelis are trying to put on them limiting Iranian access into Syria so that's a way around that now if we're asking what Iran wants Iran wants influence Iran wants its ideology to infiltrate all parts of life in the Shiite communities in the in the Arab world don't forget of course that uh, Iran is a uh, uh, the majority uh, Farsi, while we're talking about Arab Shiites in the Middle East, but it needs, it wants, it aspires for that influence, and uh, Iran wants to have that all the way to, to um, religious uh, impact, uh, and to have Shiites across the Middle East see uh, Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader of uh, Iran, as their marj al as their uh, source of Copying or translates to the source you follow. Take example from. In a sense, once you have that, once Iran has that uh, influence all across the Shiite communities, it can destabilize the Sunni countries, it can establish more of its uh, state dominance throughout the region. Now, that's the, the the essence of what Iran wants, and it is working hard to accomplish it through the Iranian Refugee Guards, Al Quds forces. And, but also, and very much so, uh, through its uh, different uh, institutions, religious ones, that it's building in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and across the region. That's, that's one of the things that is hardest to stop, really, because you can see a, a soldier with a gun. You can see an officer with a, with a, a missile sitting in a, a missile battery, but to stop, a religious foundation from preaching, that's what these uh, different Sunni countries are trying to thwart in, in these days. Now, if you're asking okay. me about uh, achievements, well, the fact that we're here today in 2020 and talking about Iran being such a regional influence, that's an achievement. That's an achievement that, again, co- coming back to the 1988, the end of the Iraq iran War, we can compare the two Irans then and now, that's an amazing achievement for Iran.
1: So I think part of what you just sketched out displays why it's so difficult for some people in the West to understand what's going on, because there are all these different types of conflicts occurring across different axes. So there's the Shia-Sunni conflict, but then there are Persian Shias and Arab Shias, and then there's you know, the issue of nation-states, how strong the nation-states are versus non-state actors, and all of this is kind of going on at the same time. Now, on the last episode we had, we actually also chatted about Iran just because it's so heavy in the news right now, and we had my colleague Jacob Shapiro on, who I worked with at uh, Geopolitical Futures, and he argues in a recent piece that the Soleimani assassination is not only an ineffective policy, and this this is his point, but that the U.S. has fundamentally failed to understand sort of how the broader regional dynamics in the Middle East over the last 30 years have been going on. And he makes this comparison to the 30 Years War in Europe, which was another transnational war that was very, very bloody because you had all of these different competing parties with universalist claims about truth, about what is real about either their religion or religion being used for political purposes. So I'm curious, do you agree with that characterization? Because I know in academia, there is some split about whether or not the Thirty Years' War is an accurate comparison for the modern Middle East. And then do you agree or disagree that the U.S. is failing to understand these broader regional dynamics and is leading it to make missteps in the region?
2: Well, when we're talking about the Thirty War, we're, we're talking about uh, in the 17th century when, when a war was using uh, religious strife as an excuse for territorial expansion. And the question is, Is this is what's happening here. Is Iran interested in territorial expansion? And I I would argue that that is not the case in this situation. I think that Iran is not looking to see Iranian soldiers on the, you know, to have them all the way out on the frontier in Egypt, for that matter, or in Turkey, in guarding the Iranian empire that the sun never sets on something like that. I, I would uh, actually argue that what we are seeing here is coming from the religious aspect, but it's using the conventional war as a mechanism to spread those ideology, uh, religion sentiments, religious sentiments. So I, uh, the, the comparison, while worth debating, I don't think is correct in this aspect. Because, again, Iran is well content to have Iraq control itself, but have allegiance to uh, Khamenei through Wilayat al faqih uh, through the running this the country of Iraq as uh, dependent on the uh, sole responsibility at the top of the hierarchy to have it as Khamenei, as the supreme leader of Iran. Accept that. This is how they established Hezbollah uh, or helped Hezbollah establish itself back in 1982, getting the organization to function um, independently. However, through adopting the mechanism of Wilat al Fakir, understanding that while the mechanism of Hezbollah has its own hierarchy internally, still the top of the pyramid is Khamenei. uh, And they need to take guidance from Khamenei eventually at the end of the day. Uh, What they do with that guidance, what kind of policy expression is up to Hezbollah. And I do believe that this is what we're uh, seeing the Iranians are trying to do in Iraq and trying to do not very successfully uh, today in Syria. They Tried uh, to kind of have like a bargaining chip or hold an IU over the head of Bashar al-Assad saying, we got Hezbollah to save you. We got uh, the Fatemiyoun to uh, to help you. We got the Zineb Yun, All these proxy organizations to fight for your country. But now you always and you have to take our general directions. We're not going to tell you how to play out your different policies, but we are going to tell you, try to tell you uh, the general direction that we want you to go. They are tr- they try to do it, but unfortunately for the Iranians, there's a, a bigger warlord in Syria today, which is and that's that's i that i think is what the iranians are trying to do again to to use military tools uh to spread religious ideology and to have the control as that the idea is not territorial expansion
3: in my uh, opinion if iran is successful in its expansion of its ideology and its expansion of its you know religion to these other areas what benefit does it get ultimately? Now, you know, obviously I I think a lot of folks who, who don't study international relations and, and the history and mechanisms of war as much think that uh you know there's there's very much a World War II mindset of oh, okay, more territory, more better. This is what people fight over, because you can use that territory for raw materials and such like that. So let's say that there is some steady state where Iran has succeeded. What do they ultimately get out of it? How does it help Iran?
2: Well, Iran today controls a lot of different districts that are not Persian nor Shiite. Iran is a 85, 83 million people country. Uh, some of the different districts do not follow uh, Shia Islam. Some of them are not Persians at all, but they still were. Uh, That's part of the dispute also with Iraq and other countries, uh, territorial dispute. But the idea of Iran was to establish regional control of those uh, districts to help Iran function as a functioning state. But this is, uh, for the Iranian, enough resources. This is, for the Iranians, enough uh, uh, manpower, let's call it that, uh, and reach across the continent. What they're looking for now is uh, the religious influence. We're looking at this in a very, I don't want to use the word progressive, even though I just did, Western eyes at this, which are somewhat detached from religion, and you uh, see religion as uh, something alongside our lives, something private in our homes, but in Iran, uh, religion is the way of life. Sharia law is a part of the state law, and to have religion, uh, others respect your religion, to have uh, other countries take uh sovereignty under take those sovereignty under your uh religious roof is control for the Iranians to spread your your jurisprudence your your uh, religious decree across the Middle East is in its own a goal an aspiration for Iran which is uh something that we don't see in the West as benefiting or having some sort of a material outcome. But uh, for uh, the Iranians, uh, this is very much a goal to aspire to. Now, after that is established, of course, through that decree, through following the Wulayat al-Fakir, you can get different countries uh, to do your bidding. So if you want to get your oil across the region, uh, you can have uh, Iraq play ball, you can have Syria play ball, you can have Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, get the pipeline all the way to the Mediterranean because they follow your religious decree so but it does it, it, you do not need uh, physical control over the those countries you have the religious decree that gets their
3: cooperation to what you need that's Iran today. I actually want to swing something by you because you, you mentioned that this idea, the you know what you just laid out of you know the religious adherence being good in its for its own sake, being something that seems a little strange to a more secular Western eye. and I want to swing an idea by you and see how this this gels, and I'm making this up as I go. So you know here in the United States, I think we have a very strong sense that liberalism and democracy when they spread to new nations, this is good, right? This is objectively good. And we are happy for those people. And we are, you know, and and we devote resources, some of them military, some of them diplomatic, some of them are the Peace Corps, some of them is our influence in the UN, some of it is aid, some of it is pressure, some of it is dangling trade deals, all sorts of stuff we do. You know, and some of it is throughout our history, Has been supporting militias or non-state, you know, armed actors in certain states to pressure or topple a regime. And, you know, and again, someone someone listening to the show is gonna go like, oh God, moral equivalence, moral equivalence. And I don't, I don't wanna I don't wanna play that game because I think in part why you do these things has a difference. And I, I don't want to go into what that difference is, but the United States maybe maybe sees some good, or the American, you know certainly American citizens see some good in this spreading, and then also, of course, when you know there's at least a lot of theory and and I think some evidence that especially compared to the fascist states, the Soviet communist states, you know states like North Korea. That when they are liberal democracies, there are greater opportunities to trade. There is less risk of military conflict and war. There are greater opportunities to form a you know defensive alliances and be able to work together to protect the seas and to you know allow you know allow for more global trade. And so the United States gets some um, some of that material benefit as well by having an ideological influence over many other nations. And and having those nations share its ideology, much in it, it you know, and it's a very, very different ideology than Iran. It's a different ideology than the Soviet Union, but that the effort and the aims might be highly analogous. And therefore, as a Western audience, we might be able to understand that. I wanna see if to, before before I just say that is true, I wanna get your thoughts on it.
2: That was a very long uh, uh question, but could you uh would you be willing to uh, agree with my reasserting that question as is democratic liberalism today uh, good or bad is it counterproductive and is it what uh, the uh, west should aspire to establish in the to be established in the middle east that's
3: is that what you're asking yeah, I guess it was too long a question. It's less, it's less whether it's good or bad. Add, now that I've said all that, you had said it's kind of hard for Western audiences to understand that Iran wants to spread its religious ideology for its own sake and that Iran thinks that spreading it is good. We may be able to understand that desire a little more by using our own desire to spread liberal democracy as an analogy as a similar impulse with a different ideology. Do you see those those impulses in our nation and Iran's nation as similar impulses, not necessarily good or bad?
2: Okay. Uh, well, we have to understand that every empire has its uh, aspiration to spare its ideology. So, um, of course, the, doc, the Truman Doctrine at the end of World War II is to spread democracy across the Middle East and, uh, the ideology was talking about that uh, democratic states don't wage war on each other. Of course, we understand that this is not uh, fundamentally correct anymore. But it's it's more than understood that uh, the United States, being the uh, leader of the free world, wants to have more states like it, so it can uh, do more uh, commerce easily, to do more conversations easily, and to uh, work together with like-minded states, it's understandable. And the same argument applies here to Iran. Iran sees itself as a potential empire, it has been in the past for sure, and it's understandable that it would like the different states that uh, surround it and that it comes in contact with positively would have the same ideology and would be like-minded to its ideas. So when we're talking about spreading Shiaism in the Iranian sense of it, it's obviously the same uh, interest and desire that uh, Iran is having as much as uh, the United States is having that desire to spread democracy. However, we do need to look at it maybe in a good and bad prism even though it's it's really not uh, an academic act to do. Because at the end of the day, uh, when we're talking, we're, we're coming from uh, the Western society, we're coming as a, as a people of uh, civil rights and promotion of uh, freedom for uh, people. And we have to examine, is the ideology that Iran is spreading, is it promoting that or is it uh, demoting that? And one has to clearly state Especially with the track record of the last 50 years, that Iran is p- now promoting civil rights through so that that ideology, and so in that sense, the these two desires, these d- uh, two interests of Iran to spread its ideology and of the United States to spread its ideology are not identical in their in their intent. One is malintent. One is bad.
0: and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: So I want to pivot back to some of the issues with uh, Hezbollah and Iran's militias throughout the broader Middle East, because one of the things that I was really excited to talk to you about was Iran's relationship with all of these different groups, right? And I know that the economy or the the financial solvency, whatever you want to call it, of Hezbollah is part of the focus of your dissertation. And one of the things that I used to track when I was an analyst was Iran's growing difficulties in paying salaries to Hezbollah fighters, or at least failing to offer sort of the similar level of benefits that it used to, to its families, which has been one of the the incentives that is generally doled out to help recruit. So I kind of have a a two-part question here for you, which is one, Would you mind just going into a little bit more detail about what your dissertation is about more broadly? And then two, how financially strapped is Hezbollah right now? And are Iran's economic pressures back at home severe enough where they're compromising its ability to support its militias throughout the Middle East?
2: Okay, so I'll start from the easy part, which is uh, my dissertation, uh, which is actually the hard part (laughs) to write uh, 300 pages. But uh, my focus... Uh, in my dissertation in my academic work is to find the connection that Syria had with Hezbollah over the years as Hezbollah uh, builds up its uh, organization and builds up its uh, different arms of the organization so we're talking about the militant arm we're talking about the uh, social uh, wing of Hezbollah and uh yes we're talking about also an economic wing and also a political wing so that's the organizational structure of Hezbollah which I'm I'm researching and going into details to elaborate between in 1982 and 2005 when the Syrians pulled out as a result of uh international pressure and Lebanese pressure uh out of Lebanon uh, altogether and and I assert that uh, this time frame between 1982 and 2005, Syria really had uh, quite a strong influence on those different aspects of uh, Hezbollah that I just mentioned, maybe even to the extent that Iran did. And in some uh, years, and sometimes, for instance, in some uh, aspects, even more than Iran had. So that's that's my, my focus. Today. Uh, and in doing so, well, it's common knowledge that uh, Iran is funding Hezbollah over the years and in investing a lot of dollars. Millions and millions were uh, transported to officials, uh, whether it was uh, to build up uh, military mechanisms, whether it's to pay salaries, but uh, starting from 1985, it's already to establish uh, social enterprises, Jihad uh, al-Bana, uh, establishment, an institution that foundation that Iran uh, lends to Hezbollah to build up uh, ruined villages in South Lebanon, investing a lot of money into that. And uh, then uh, more organizations are building that way uh, to compensate killed uh, families of killed Hezbollah soldiers and help rehabilitate uh, wounded uh, Hezbollah soldiers. And then to build up hospitals and medical centers and, and uh, uh, schools and to build up infrastructure and so on and so forth. And so we're seeing a lot of Iranian money going in there. But and this is what, where my, my uh, research is trying to uh, give more light. Hezbollah is well invested already from very early time in other venues to accumulate funding. Mostly, uh, especially in the beginning, it's uh, criminal activity on Various uh, kinds, whether it's laundering money for uh, criminal organizations, whether it's drug trafficking, whether it's uh, drug uh growing and then selling, whether it's car theft and uh, in different countries and then selling of the that property elsewhere, whether it's uh helping move things from one place to another, whether it's people or currency or well, again, uh, drugs enabling criminal activity in that way and getting uh, paid for those services. But also we're seeing um, Hezbollah uh, profiting from, uh, especially this is uh, coming to light, uh, especially at the uh, later uh, the end, uh, the uh, second part of the 1990s and coming into 2000s. We seeing Hezbollah already having such a name for itself that Hezbollah is getting paid to teach. Uh, so, for instance, they're teaching Mexican cartel organizations, uh, drug trafficking organizations, to dig tunnels into the United States. They're getting paid for that. Uh, they're uh, teaching in the Bacca Valley in Lebanon uh, and training kinds of uh, militant organizations uh, in Iraq. Uh, and so on. So basically, Hezbollah is getting paid for their expertise as a terrorist organization, but not to do terror, but to train other other organizations, uh, whether terrorist terror organizations or criminal organizations. So we're seeing Hezbollah is making money uh, through those venues. Now, it got to the point where in 2018 or 2017, uh, Hezbollah was one of the wealthiest organizations You that in 2018 2017, American sanctions are already applied on in Iran. The Iranians have already cut down on funding to Hezbollah. And we understand that uh, funding uh, the estimates in 2019 was that uh, Hezbollah had to uh, take a cut of uh, somewhere around 40 percent of the budgets they were, that they were getting, the money they were getting from the Iranians. So the Iranians, according to some estimates, were giving. Somewhere around uh, in 2019, um, uh, $1 billion a year to Hezbollah. We're talking about um, going down to 60, uh, 600 million dollars uh, a year, 60% of that going into Hezbollah. And still, they are able to maintain in 2017, 2018 the organization. However, we do see Hezbollah going into financial stripes. And arises raises a question if they're making so much money, how come they're Letting go of, uh, uh, military reservists. Uh, they are, uh, bringing back Hezbollah soldiers that were deployed to Syria and letting them go, not keeping them on salary. Why in the beginning of 2019, we're seeing, uh, Hezbollah scaling down, uh, its expenditure to the point where you, it may sound a little bit ridiculous, but, uh, one of the indicators is that they were cutting down on uh, programming for El Manal, their TV station.
3: Huh. I
2: mean, it sounds minute and, and ridiculous that a terror organization would be so interested in you know, changing the programming, not investing his money into their TV station. But we have to understand that that TV station was originally starting to broadcast in 1988 or 1989. Never since then, it's spreading across Lebanon and the Middle East, the messages of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is interesting spreading its message, especially to Lebanon, because Hezbollah first and foremost uh, feels it needs to justify itself to the Lebanese more than anybody else. To justify uh, holding on to the holy weapons of jihad, uh, even though the Israelis already pulled out of Lebanon in 2000, still 19 years later and 20 years later, Hezbollah is still the only armed militia uh, in Lebanon, even though it's illegal to have armed militias in Lebanon. So. Uh, Understanding that situation where Hezbollah is uh, having to cut back on so many different things, pensions to uh, different families of wounded soldiers or killed soldiers, and so on and so forth. This tells us that Hezbollah is uh, suffering somehow. And now the question is, where? Where is it hurting and why? Um, So on one hand, uh, one would say, okay, so here we go. The uh, sanctions on Hezbollah. working. Those sanctions prevent Hezbollah from uh, interacting within the economic stratosphere of uh, of, uh, Lebanon, the banking system of Lebanon. And because they cannot do that because of the sanctions, they're having uh, financial difficulties. But that would be wrong, to think. Uh, Hezbollah has its own internal economic ecosystem. They do not need that interaction uh, with the banks of Lebanon. Uh, they have uh, to the point where uh, some people can use even a debit card from Hezbollah to pay in a grocery store uh, in South Lebanon, owned by a Shiite. The money is internal. It's like a closed off system where uh, the money doesn't go um, and doesn't have a part in Lebanese society. And this is also one of the complaints that Lebanese today have against Hezbollah. For not paying taxes for not participating. Now today, one of the biggest, the biggest community today in Lebanon, the estimates are that uh Shiite community in Lebanon is somewhere between forty to fifty percent of the uh society of Lebanon. That's the biggest community alone. And if it's not participating in the economy because it's holding a, a closed off ecosystem financially, then Hezbollah would be one of the major uh, faults of the Lebanese financial system. And that's why the sanctions are not working on Hezbollah. Which sanctions are working? The ones on Iran, the ones that are limiting Iran's capability to transfer funds to Hezbollah, the ones that are limiting how much Iran can transfer to Hezbollah, that is on the one hand. On the other hand, very importantly, and it's done to an extent quite covertly, but uh Come to know many organizations and people that are working uh, to make it happen. There's a lot of pressure on Hezbollah's illegal activity that is manufacturing its uh, money source other than Iran. You might remember not very long ago uh, Politico had an expose about the Hezbollah drug trafficking slash secondhand uh, car transactions uh, that would get uh, Hezbollah money in the United States and in Africa, and the expose talked about how the Obama administration gave uh, specific instructions to not crack down on that that structure, that that uh, enterprise, that whole money transaction uh, going on with the with uh, Hezbollah there. But uh, but today we're seeing that's not the case. Today the news are hit. Uh, every week with another Hezbollah-connected agent or or drag trafficker or merchant that is picked up in South America, in crossing borders, or somewhere in Europe, uh, because uh, different law-enforcing agencies are uh, coming down on Hezbollah's uh, criminal activity that is manufacturing so much money for the organization. That's why we're seeing Hezbollah today in somewhat of, uh, I wouldn't go so far to say dire straits financially but it is having financial difficulties
3: i i do at least just want to note that i am uh morbidly tickled by the idea of being like a terrorist consultant right so you're like you know you call up you know you call up this, this some guy from lebanon who's in hezbollah and be like hey let's fly him out here for a couple of weeks you know he's gonna sit us down and really you know Really get us, you know, get get our terrorist or criminal operations under control. You know, cost savings, you know, synergies, etc.
1: Terrorist synergies, exactly.
3: Terrorist synergies. So I, I've been like hanging on to that to that idea in my head of this, yeah, of this guy with an AK forty seven strapped around and drawing on a whiteboard. So <laughs> uh, everyone, you're welcome. I actually the thing I wanted to ask about was as we're, since we're on the topic of pressure on. Hezbollah in Lebanon, there have been these huge nationwide protests against corruption. We did an episode on them and their potential impact rippling throughout the Middle East. And of course, we've not followed up. Do these protests, uh, and they seem to be you know, kind of across ethno-sectarian groups, which is new and different for Lebanon in many ways. Obviously, the previous Cedar revolution was a, was a moment of that. Do these protests signal a shift in Lebanon where Hezbollah is going to be less tolerated than they were before? Are they a threat to, to Hezbollah? Does Iran care about them, etc.?
2: It's quite uh, interesting because if we're looking at Lebanon, potentially, potentially, the Arab revolutions have, have finally hit Lebanon 10 years after the beginning. So in a sense, Lebanon is laid into the game to say that uh, people are uniting against their corrupt governments, which is the sentence you can say about Tunisia, about Yemen, about Libya, about Egypt, uh, about Syria. And now you can say that about Lebanon. Yes, there is a unity between Sunnis and Christians and Shiites and Druze standing shoulder to shoulder. However, their biggest complaint today yeah, is against Hezbollah not as much Amal as as much as the uh, Amal uh, politicians and leaders are some of the most corrupt ones of Lebanon today but Hezbollah has a chokehold on the country and the uh, prolonging of the current government status is to the benefit of Hezbollah the 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 Organization to lose the most from a, a government change, a drastic change, like uh, the uh, the people demand in Lebanon, is Hezbollah. Hezbollah stands to lose the most because at this point, Hezbollah has gotten to the point where they're not the opposition, uh, like back uh, ten, fifteen years ago. They're in the coalition. They have, uh, because of the uh, election uh, bills that were authorized in Lebanon over the years, they have along uh, with uh, their allies, they have a veto uh, in the government so they can take down uh, any government they want that not follows, doesn't follow the, uh, their perspective of how things should be run. And in the recent election, they got a reshuffling of the different ministries, and they got the Ministry of Health, one of the uh, key, key ministries that, that they got. And that's very important to Hezbollah, mostly because of Iran. As well as also in the game of uh, trafficking, not just uh, illegal drugs, but well, not just addictive drugs or or, or cannabis and and uh, heroin and things like that, but rather uh, also conventional drugs, health-inducing drugs, and they're trying to uh, bring into Lebanon counterfeit drugs or Iranian-made uh, drugs and having the Ministry of Health help them do that, or in the future at least. Uh, would help them uh, generate uh, that kind of enterprise. But when you have a reshuffling like that of uh, the government, and the people are calling for a technocratic uh, government, meaning not influenced people to serve as bureaucrats, a minister would uh, have w- would be in nobody's pocket in that sense. This is not the situation today. And this is the worst situation for Hezbollah, because they rely on that uh, patronage clanalism uh, system in Lebanon for their benefit, and so we are seeing Hezbollah organizing a counter demonstrations of people to go against the protest, and we're seeing Hezbollah stirring the pot in the sense of bringing more violence into the street when the demonstrators, to begin with, were priding themselves on taking violence out of uh, the equation of these protests. Uh, You could see people doing uh, concerts in the streets and dancing together as part of the protest. But today, now, we're seeing uh, demonstrations on the streets, and uh, we're seeing earlier uh, today hundreds uh, were injured in in a violence uh, uh, spree in one of the demonstrations, and we're seeing Hezbollah trying to... uh, Take this demonstration and and turn it around, and and take this thing out of it, and bend it to its uh, needs, in the sense that they already got potential prime minister that is already in their pocket, uh, Hassan Diab. Uh, he is uh, though Sunni. He is uh, very much under the influence of Hezbollah and Alman, although he is uh, from. The educational perspective and, and uh, has experience in the government. Still, he has a chip on his shoulder, which is Hezbollah, and they want him to be able to form a government which serves Hezbollah's uh, interests best. But currently, the people are demonstrating in front of the uh, House to try and prevent him to form that kind of a government. And so, uh, the Lebanese uh, demonstrations today show us both. That Lebanon is trying to adopt the Arab revolutions and take down uh, corruption, but also shows us who's its biggest enemy. Not because it's corrupt, but rather Hezbollah profits continues to profit from a corrupt status of uh, Hezbollah of uh, of Lebanon.
1: So, Iftar, let's let's pivot back then to Hezbollah's role. In Syria and use that to talk a little bit more about the broader geopolitical situation there because Russia and Iran both supported Assad during this during the uh, during the civil war and now it's it's kind of winding down I mean there are still theaters that are open in the north with Turkey and the SDF and the US kind of still and then of course there's what seems to be an intractable problem with Idlib in the northwest with Turkey not wanting to retreat and Assad wanting to retake that territory, but Russia not wanting to get into war with Turkey. So now that the war is winding down and Iran has deployed Hezbollah, which I think is the first time it's used Hezbollah in the Middle East outside of Lebanon, but correct me if I'm wrong there. Do do you see Russia and Iran's goals or objectives in Syria beginning to diverge as the war is winding up, or are they still basically seeing things eye to eye?
2: Well, Russia and Iran haven't seen eye to eye for a while now. We're talking at least a year, maybe a year and a half already. Iran has become a disruptive agent for uh, Russia's policy. Russia's policy in, in in Syria is really to establish a fragile balance, where Syria is a functioning uh, state and can reinvest itself into uh, infrastructure building, into energy production and consuming, and reinvest in in weapons acquiring. All three are what Russia is invested in. All three are what Russia wants to engage Syria in, to help Syria with its infrastructure, to have Syria buy uh, weapons, and to get uh, Syrians' uh, energy transported to uh, outside of Syria and, and profit from it. And these are the things that Syria profits, uh, Russia profits from, and that's what they why they need a more stable Syria to do that. However, whatever Iran is doing in Syria is destabilizing Syria. When Iran is bringing proxy soldiers, when Iran is building up mis- uh, guided missile factories, uh, when Iran is establishing across the Iraqi-Syrian uh, border weapons uh, silos and uh, underground uh, havens for rocket-launching uh, uh, trucks. Uh, this is all causing destabilization, especially because the Israelis are reacting to it, and the United States is reacting to and, uh And we mentioned in the beginning the uh, killing of Qasem Soleimani. It's another part of that, another chapter in that uh, story, something that destabilizes uh, Syria and Iraq is part of it, and that's against what... Russia is aspiring for. Uh, Now, uh, vis-a-vis Turkey, the Russians can handle Turkey, they can give them a slice of the pie and maybe territorial slice, maybe more to uh, the Turkish uh, interest uh, to quiet down the Kurdish uh, resistance uh, within Syria and in that way guarantee the Turkish that their Kurds in eastern Turkey don't rise up against the central government of Turkey. Uh, So Russia can take care of all these things. But as long as Iran is stirring the pot, it makes life for Russia that much more difficult. So this is why we're seeing an agreement in silence, let's call it that way, but it's much more than that. In the past, it was certainly much more than that, of Russia to anything that Israel does or wants or needs to do in Syria and on the border with Iraq uh, against the Iranians and their proxies. This is why... For very long time and still to a point today uh, the israelis and the russians are coordinated on the syrian aerospace this is why just this week we were earlier uh, last week uh, that is we were able uh, to see um alleged or according to foreign sources israeli attacks in the uh on the t4 uh, airbase that uh, iran is using and its militias are using now the syrians have the ability to intercept these Israeli attacks or alleged attacks, Uh, the Syrians uh, just don't want to do it because it does serve Syrian interests to have the Iranians push back a little bit and trim uh, the wings of Iran in Syria. Um, This is something that we can understand uh, that's going on uh, today between Iran
3: and Russia in Syria. We've got one question left, so I'm thinking about what's the best question to ask. Xander, if you have a—I'm just trying to to pick how to end with a bang. Xander, if you have any great ideas, let me know. Well,
1: things we haven't talked about— Can I pitch an idea? Please. Oh, yeah. One of the
2: things that were most interesting finding out is whether or not what the Iranians did to react to Qasem Soleimani's killing— was it the end of the story or not, right? This is what people are interested in finding out. The Iranians targeted an American air base, shot up a bunch of uh, warehouses, shot up a helicopter uh, in an al base. And Kitab Hezbollah also fired a bunch of uh, rockets as well on American air bases. But seriously, there wasn't any major effect afterwards. And one would think, okay, so the Iranians shot down uh, inadvertently uh, by mistake. And some even claim today that that was uh, cyber infiltration of one of the uh, enemy states to Iran uh, to their air defense systems. Their Iranians shot down in the Ukraine plane, killing 176 uh, passengers, the majority of which Iranians and even within the Canadians that were on this uh Ukrainian plane that was eventually supposed to get the people there to Canada, even the Canadians there, uh, uh, the larger part of those Canadians were Iranian expats that were uh, having business or doing uh, education in Canada. So did that stop everything? Was the, the shooting down of the uh, Ukrainian plane uh, what killed the momentum for the Iranian? And to that, we have to look at the guy that was killed what he was doing what he was like and who was replacing him so if we're looking at Qasem Suleimani, the 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 person and uh, what effect he had basically he was the tail that wagged the dog uh, Qasem Suleimani became the head of the Quds forces 20 years ago around the year 1998-1999 and the Quds forces are a wing of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, but what we had over the years, especially in the last five years in Syria, was that the Quds forces commander was the one deploying Iranian Revolutionary Guards and controlling the Iranian Revolutionary Guards' actions within within Syria and Iraq. In fact, he was promoted in his rank to be uh, the equal of the Iranian Revolutionary God's commander while he was supposed to be his subordinate. So in fact, we had the greatest strategic thinker, the, 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 the commander that had the most clout and, and pull all across the Iranian armed forces, that had the ear of the Supreme Leader of Iran and his seat in the Jihad Council killed. Now what? How do you replace such a guy? And the guy that came to replace him, Kani, is really not a Suleimani kind of, if Soleimani is an A type of person, Kani is really the, the B type of person. He's a backstage person. He's very much uh, a, plan, a man that, that, uh, that does planning, that uh, takes his time, and he's not a very offensive uh, type of uh, avant-garde uh, commander. More gray, uh, uh, the experts uh, in my environment uh, uh, describe it. So what will he do? And will he be the one to do it against the United States, against Israel, against the Saudis, to avenge the death? Or uh, we will see a changing of the strategy of Iran in the Middle East as a result of it? because uh, already we've seen Salami, uh, the commander of the ILGC, uh, doing a complete change of guard of the uh, the commander of the besiege was replaced in the last year and other uh, high-ranking commanders as well by Salami, which also came in only in the last year, year and a half, uh, into the job. So in a sense, potentially, we can see a change in strategy in Syria because of it and in Iraq because Salami is going to come in and reasserted himself as the man in charge. So quite a different uh, situation in Syria. And potentially, if we should uh, rely on analyzing Ka'ani's character, try to understand what kind of repercussions we're talking about. In this, going back to, Xander, your question, uh, whether or not uh, Hezbollah has ever acted as an independent force outside of Lebanon Uh, in the past, aside from Syria, well, Hezbollah did act in two or three occasions as an independent force, but using uh, locals as their proxies. It did so in South America, it did so in uh, uh, Indonesia, in, in Southeast Asia, sorry, in Thailand, and it did so in Saudi. So in Saudi, there was, of course, the explosion of the Kabul towers against the U.S., Embassy and and station, and that the commander of the if uh, Suleimani Soleim, uh, was responsible, the definition was Suleimani was responsible to everything to the west, meaning Syria, meaning Israel, meaning uh, Lebanon. While Qa'ani was responsible for everything to the east, so Saudi and Thailand and the activities of Hezbollah there fell very much under the the command of uh, Kani. In the following year, if I had to to make a, a wager, unless of course different clandestine services are able to stop it, which they are obviously working at. In the following year, we're going to see, I presume, a bigger effort from the head of the Kutz forces today, Kani, trying to reestablish the connections in. Uh, Southeast Asia, reestablished reestablished the uh, forces combating there and potentially trying to hit Western targets, whether it's US, whether it's uh, Israeli, whether it's Saudi, in uh, Asian and Southeast Asian countries. And that would be uh, the equivalent of hitting the uh, Israeli embassy in South America, hitting the Israeli community uh, in Buenos Aires. Uh, in the 90s. And this is potentially what we might see as a uh, payback, or at least attempts to do that if we're to follow what are Connie's uh, strengths. That's where they lie.
1: Ooh, this has been a detail-heavy episode, which is what we love at Reconsider. And for listeners out there Please be assured that this was actually only a small taster of what we were hoping to get to, but, you know, an hour is an hour. For folks who want to hear more from you, Iftah, and uh, again to our listeners, I I was fortunate enough to sit in on one of Iftah's lectures while I was in Israel recently, and on a topic that is notoriously divisive and difficult to pin down. I thought his lecture was exceedingly even-handed and informative. So please be sure to check out more of his stuff. If they want to read more, if they want to contact you for a tour or a guide or anything like that, how would they find you, Ifta?
2: So, of course, through my website, uh, seminars.com, there's, um, there's all the details uh, to contact me. There's also the blog that I write to give more analysis about very specific instances like the uh, regulation law, uh, that Israel legislated, uh, in the sea area in the West Bank. Not very long. And, uh, yes, you can always, uh, uh, hit me up on email and, uh, come and, and hear me in a lecture or invite me to do a, a security uh, briefing on a tour, whether it's in the um, security barrier in Jerusalem or whether it's the Gaza uh, envelope or whether it's the northern border, Israel borders with Syria and Lebanon. And so uh, to talk more about Hezbollah there. But again, uh, Mela Seminars is really the place to find all these things and also uh, kind of a short list of academic books and articles and uh, different uh, things that I do recommend to expand on your Middle East uh, geopolitics
3: education.
1: And that's Mela Seminars, M-E-L-A, Middle East Learning Academy, seminars.com, MelaSeminars.com.
3: And we've, of course, got all those links on the show notes for you. So just in case you didn't memorize it or you were walking or driving while listening to this, don't write it down. (laughs) You can go to the website, ReconsiderMedia.com, find the show and follow the link from there.
1: Yiftat, thanks so much for joining us and chatting with us about the complexities that are the modern Middle East.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a wonderful opportunity
3: to converse about these very important topics. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Iftar. And dear listeners, we will see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?